0: This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. Welcome to Inside Geneva, the podcast. This is where we unpick the big issues being discussed in this city, and we go behind the scenes to find out from aid workers, UN diplomats, and, we hope, ambassadors, how they're coping with some of the challenges. Today our topic is one of those key challenges it's refugees asylum and immigration. It's difficult, it's controversial and lately at least the populist rhetoric seems to be beating the humanitarian message hands down. To look at that I'm joined today by Liz Throssell of the UN Refugee Agency, Matt Cochrane of the Red Cross Federation, And our regular analyst, commentator, and devil's advocate, Daniel Warner of the Graduate Institute. But before we start our discussion, let's have a listen at just what aid agencies today are up against when it comes to populist rhetoric.
1: I mean, when you have 15,000 people marching up, and you have hundreds and hundreds of people, and you have two or three border security people that are brave
2: and great. If you allow Hundreds of thousands of people to enter the territory of the European Union without control, without check. Does it give the opportunity for the the terrorist organizations to send their terrorists to Europe? Yes, it
3: does.
2: Nigerian mafia, drug smuggling, prostitution, rapes and homicide in Palagonia that cannot be forgotten.
1: When people say, well, look, Nigel, what about children? Well, actually, we've seen before many that came who were supposed to be children uh, actually were sort of 33-year-olds and looked like they'd be quite good in the rugby scrum. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people. These are animals.
0: Most of that rhetoric, apart from the last pretty chilling comment, you can actually see why it's persuasive. This is the kind of thing, it clearly, that is winning votes. We heard there from the United States, from Italy, from Hungary, from the United Kingdom. Liz, your message at the UN Refugee Agency is pinned to fundamental, we thought, values, but you seem to be losing out. Are you doing something wrong?
3: Well, we, we do stress those fundamental values, but what we also do is we stress the humanity and the individuality of the people who are concerned. You heard them talking about influxes and masses and animals, really dehumanising language. What we've got to do, and I think we've probably got to do better, that's absolutely clear, is really step up our own rhetoric, our own positive rhetoric, to really make the case why people should care, why people should listen, and why people should act.
0: Matt? Matt? caring, generosity, but there's no evidence that these things are
2: vote-winners. Um, I mean, the language is incredibly emotive, is it? I think what's what strikes me about listening to those clips is that it, there's, not, there's nothing factual in there. It's all about emotion. It's all about painting um, immigrants, migrants, as, as the other, as dangerous. Whereas on our side, our response is often very factual, perhaps even for HCR it's very legal at times because of of, of the mandate and for the Red Cross it's very much around principles and, and, and traditions and it's almost like kind of are we bringing a knife to a gunfight almost to... to, to, to yeah,
3: use I agree. I mean, it, it, we do have legal language. What we also have is absolutely masses and masses of statistics and figures that do portray the absolutely. situation but people have to dig through mm-hmm. to those statistics and we probably need to do a better job of making the statistics really tell the story properly. Mm-hmm. Um, we are trying to contest emotions with our facts and maybe we need to bring more emotion into the debate. Do you
0: think that's right, well, Danny? I, I'm just wondering whether, I mean, do you think perhaps they should be playing even more hardball? When you hear the comments from the quite, quite contemptuous comments from somebody like uh, Nigel Farage we heard there, should they be really calling this out more clearly?
1: The question is, who's calling out? UNHCR, the Red Cross, both of them have a certain legal authority. What they don't have here is a political authority. And I think back to Sergio Vieira Mello, when Sergio worked with the Vietnamese, both people, there was also a certain charisma. It wasn't just movie stars. It was Sergio. I think of Madame Ogata who was saying this has got to be something that we have to do and I feel that there's not enough push, you say hardball, uh, against this kind of rhetoric and just saying no, you have a legal obligation, you have a moral obligation, this is the way it has to be and I think that's something that's missing in the dialogue today.
0: But you talked about Sergio Vieira de Mello, Sadako Ogata, they were working at times when I feel there was a more receptive audience in governments. I mean, we had Bill Clinton and Tony Blair go to war in Kosovo, basically for the sake of refugees. Now what we see, and this could be coming uh, in the next few weeks or months, is suggestions from Washington in particular that billions in funding for aid agencies, UN aid agencies, will be cut also presumed for the Red Cross. Does that does that worry you too, Liz and Matt?
3: Yeah, it hangs over us. I mean, you're talking about us having or not having moral authority. I think one of the things that we really weigh up, we struggle with, is that we want to remain true to our principles. We want to remain true. But there's some really difficult decisions to be made that we, if we don't have the money, we're not going to be able to help people at all. So if that... you call them out, do you risk getting less money? Is that part of the... That's part of the calculation. It absolutely is. I think it is something that we have to take on board. There are lots of discussions, lots of work behind the scenes. I mean, a lot of countries that, that are our big funders that give us money are also countries that are also um, putting forward this kind of rhetoric. So it is, in a way, a bit of a split personality on behalf of those countries. We're trying to navigate that. I think it's it's very difficult. You were making reference to the earlier days of Sergio Vera de Melo. I think, the problem for us now is that it isn't sort of a bipolar world. It isn't the democracies and the authoritarian governments, and we could go after the author- authoritarian governments because we had right on our side. We've now got to sometimes try and call out countries that have democratically elected governments but have very sort of populist uh, leaders. So I think that has complicated it, and, and I think we're working our way through it. We, we, we haven't found the, the right solution. But I think what we have to keep at the forefront of our mind at the UN Refugee Agency is we have to do what we think is in the best interest of the people that we work with and for, and that's refugees and displaced people. Matt, you wanted to
0: come yeah, in there. Yeah,
2: I think, I mean, we were talking before, right, about have the rules changed, have the goalposts been moved. And I, I think the rule book has been completely, in some regards, been completely ripped up. And maybe it's up to us to, to realise that, and that the, the the rules that we've, some of the rules that we follow, some of the approaches that we've taken are no longer applicable. I mean, I think there are some non-negotiables, I think... I think we have to continue to insist that humanitarian need has to be, sit above or outside of, of politics, right? I think once we give that up for dead, then then probably mm-hmm. the game is over and the price will be paid not by us, but but by the people who really can't um, who really can't afford uh, to get by without without help. But I think, you know. Do we start needing to come back to your point, Liz? Do we start needing to find our own rhetoric? Do we need to be slightly more bombastic? And maybe not in a sense of picking a fight because of the realities, the political and financial realities. But there are a lot of people out there, I believe. I, I absolutely feel this. They're in my family who 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 are confused about this issue, who may not share the sentiments that, that we have sitting here in Geneva or sitting where we sit on the political spectrum but haven't t- totally given over to the other side to the to the less tolerant the the more crueler kind of view on this debate I think when ha- but we're not putting an argument forward to them because we're coming to them with statistics and with and with you know recalling uh, responsibilities under international law and these are not evocative points that are going to move the needle one one bit I wouldn't think
1: I mean, two points. First, the rule book has changed. I mean, you have a convention, 1951 Refugee Convention, which was after the Second World War, they tried to change it a little bit. Now we have a global compact on migration, which is soft law. In other words, we've gone from certain obligations, treaty obligations, to soft law, which certain countries, important ones, have not signed. But the second about the confusion of getting the message across, without getting personal, The Secretary General of the United Nations is the former High Commissioner for Refugees. Shouldn't there be leadership coming from the United Nations on this issue? Because when you see the refugees, the migrants... You're asking, who's in charge of this? Is each country in charge, or are they working together? And there have been situations, such as the Vietnamese boat people in the 1970s, when the countries agreed, we would work together, you'll take this number, you'll take this number. What we see now is increased nationalism, where there's no cooperation. The situation with the open arms boat is a perfect example all the countries are doing individually, but there's no cooperation. That's not a change in the rule book. That's a change in multilateralism, and it's dangerous.
0: But how do you get past that? I mean, you know, I think many people in Geneva were very pleased when Antonio Guterres became Secretary General, somebody with the absolutely pure humanitarian pedigree. Okay, some politics as well, but really a humanitarian pedigree behind him. But he started that job at a time when a, a very senior aid official in Geneva told me that aid agencies, UN aid agencies, don't know who to talk to anymore. I mean, has, has Guterres ever been to the White House? I don't think so. Government leaders are just not so interested anymore. As you said, Danny, they are, they are looking at, uh, at their voters and seeing what wins them votes.
1: But the point about getting the message across, that's what I'm saying. Who's going to get the message across? Is it the agencies such as the Red Cross or UNHCR? Is it leadership? Who who are we all looking for? Someone to say to Mr. Trump, Mr. Salvini, someone to say, that's enough, I have a counter-argument. It's not the argument that I'm saying that's important. It's the person who's saying the argument, and your two organizations have the moral authority to get that message across.
3: I think it is a challenge, and I think that's one of the reasons why we try to to work with sort of partner organisations or or, or partners to really sort of diversify the voice. Because the danger is we're always within our bubble. We have the messages that just resonate with people who hear them time and time again. And what we really need to do to to get out beyond that bubble is, is to really diversify the way we present our arguments, the people that we work with. You're talking about sort of the, the, the UN. The UN is, is it's the member states as well, isn't it? And I do think the governments, the member states, they have to take responsibility for, for really sort of looking at these issues. So I think, you know, for us, it's really about trying to um, get out of our bubble, diversify our messaging and try and make it stronger. But we're not there yet.
2: You know, I think we feel, well, I certainly feel, there is a compelling message to speak to that anxious middle. It may be there's a political cost to it, and I'm interested to hear, Liz, particularly what you think. You know, are we prepared to sort of say to governments, look, it's not for us to tell you how to manage immigration. I mean, there are constraints, and you should meet those constraints, and when you step outside that, then we need to speak up strongly. But let's talk about how you treat people. Let's talk about how you treat migrants. And and what I see conflated, and, and going back to that package, Imogen, was we're mixing up controlling borders with with punishing people. So all of a sudden, people drowning in the Mediterranean or being subject to horrific abuse in Libya or or in any other part of the world is an acceptable means to an end of controlling the borders. Now that's you you don't have to unpack that too much to realize that's that's a truly horrible moral leap in, in, in judgment, right? So perhaps that is a pressure point where we can start saying, no, hang on, okay, let's let's leave the the more political stuff aside, and let's focus on the fact that we can all agree that it's unacceptable for for for, for, for women and children to die in deserts and on on oceans. It's completely unacceptable for for people to be sent back to, to 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 awful camps, to rape camps, things like that. Can't we find a common ground on that and focus on that? And perhaps there's a consensus there. I think of my own family in Australia and who, who struggle perhaps on the political side of, of immigration. But I know when I bring that conversation to this point around the inherent dignity, as, as you said, of every single person, you can begin to see that you're making a little bit of room. And maybe that's a space to, to, to look at. But again, it's, it's yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, no,
1: I'm asking whether we're getting into a situation of compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. And I give the example of the Vietnam War. You have one photo Of a girl having been subjected to napalm, and that turned hundreds of thousands, millions of people against the war. You've now had pictures and stories of kids dying on the beach, father, and one after another, and yet we don't seem to have the same outrage and reaction.
0: We see these pictures all the time. We're bombarded with media. This is, I think, this is part of the problem. It's not just compassion fatigue. We are becoming immune mm-hmm. to this.
3: Well, you're right. We are being bombarded. We we, we are. I mean, we were, you know, we were talking about the the, the image of Alan Curdie, the little, little toddler, um, that that sort of resonated, uh, but didn't resonate the way that the, the image from from you know um, uh, Vietnam resonated. I think what we would think is is that. Um, we're appealing to different types of audiences and I think you know, we talk to people who, who sort of instinctively sort of, sort of sympathise with what we're doing and then you've got people on the other extreme that we're never going to convince but it is that conflicted middle and I think we do have to be better at really understanding them. I think it's absolutely right that sometimes people are a bit worried about immigration you know yeah. that their societies are changing that their neighborhood is yeah, changing and the fear that people of is natural. the fear mm-hmm. of change is natural but also a very human thing is also to to help the other not just fear the other mm-hmm. and i think we could say there's compassion fatigue but there are also Lots of people who really do want to make a difference, do want to do something, and we've got to really be better at telling them what they should do. Mm -hmm. Um, You see the inspiring example of the the younger people, the climate change activists. That is very inspiring. And so I'm sure that's something we can build on. I don't think we need to be depressed and think all is lost. I think we've got to be realistic. But I think we've got to sort of say, this is what we believe in, this is what we're doing, and we need to, to not just say to people, this is terrible, we need to give them ways of actually changing the situation, giving them proper calls to action so where they can really do something.
1: I still think a lot of this, although you can do communication to a large number of people, I still think there's a leadership issue involved. I mean, we're all dealing with countries that have changed. And, and the natives and said So there is a fear out there. Mm. And the question, again, is to how you combat that fear. And that's why I think someone emotionally, you think of Churchill, we have nothing to fear. You think of Franklin Roosevelt. We don't have those kind of leaders today. And I think that's a huge problem. Whether it be Greta or an adolescent or, or an adult, no one is taking the moral high ground and saying, Mr. Trump, Mr. so-and-so, Madam so-and-so, that is not acceptable. That's not our values. That's not what we stand for. And having people listen to that and follow, not with statistics and facts, as you said before, as an emotional thing to give people confidence so they're not worried about these invasions, people taking their jobs and all the rest.
3: I think it was easier back in the day of Winston Churchill, though, for him to get his message across because literally it was just the BBC, wasn't it? Let's face it. And now you've got no
0: Twitter. You know, <laughs> Twitter. You know. I mean, I'm sure no. he
3: would have been an absolute star on Twitter. But you know, it is much harder. And we, we, you know, it's too easy just to blame social media. But we are operating in such a different world politically, socially, culturally.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that's true. I mean, I think I come back to what you ta- said about politicians with Vision and Sergio Vieira de Mello and so on. And at the moment, you get this feeling that we're living in a time where politics has become quite, quite narrow and mm. nativist and nationalist. And I don't want to say, all oh, these words are really wrong. But as you said, Matt, if it comes to how people are treated, if the language then leads to, you know, encouraging people to be treated badly... We have a, a problem. The humanitarian values of the planet have a problem.
2: Absolutely. I mean, again, we the game's almost up, right? I mean, I think. I mean, that's a bit, probably a little bit dramatic. Dramatic. But once we start accepting that that it's acceptable for people to be mistreated or not helped, that it's an acceptable means to a political end or a policy end, to a, just to leave people to drown in the Mediterranean or to separate families or to, to, to not provide basic protections to children, then, then, I mean, it's almost unconscionable, right? Thinking back even, even five or 10 years ago.
3: And to criminalise people who tried to help them as
2: yeah, well. Absolutely. In which oh, we yes. haven't even got to yeah. yet.
0: But this again is, is it concerning that yeah. we have, we have international law, uh, international maritime law about mm-hmm. rescue at sea, but, some countries south of here have said, Well, no, if you go into the waters and, and, and sail a boat in there and there and rescue people, we will prosecute you.
2: It's also not on the humanitarian sector mm. to completely solve this either, right? I, mean, I think mm. we, I, I completely agree with Liz that we need to be much more, much stronger, much braver, and we need to get out of our heads and get out of our books and actually stake a moral, defensible position. But a humanitarian organization has never solved the problem. We, we're there because. Because Not the an political of problem. No, exactly. No, Separate the political from the humanitarian. Yeah. No. But, I mean, it's, it's you know, I think of our President Francesco Rocca who, who's been a strong advocate in, from his time, as he still is, as President of the Italian Red Cross and really was one of those first voices on the shore going back a number of years and talking about the dignity of the people arriving. And and he talks about this move towards criminalisation of groups in, I think, a really compelling way. And, and he makes the point that, like, imagine if governments asked firemen to assess the uh, the status of people in a burning building. I mean, that that's completely unacceptable, and that's exactly what we're talking about now. And the most important thing is that the people are getting assistance, the people are getting support and care when they wouldn't otherwise. And and, and if that means that we say something, then we say something, and oftentimes that means that we, we we keep mum. But as long as we feel that the people who need help are getting help, then that's, I guess, the North Star. Now, whether that's happening all the time, sure, but...
0: I think it's a debate that uh, is going to go on and on and on, but it's all we've got time for for today. Thank you all very much, Liz Frosssel, Matt Cocker, and Danny Warner for joining us. A reminder, you can send us suggestions for what we should talk about in the next podcast. Find our contact details on the Swiss Info website. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to Swissinfo.ch forward slash ENG forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time. And thank you all for listening.
3: Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site, and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.